everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast. The only podcast where you broke up with somebody in the past because you described them as being too fiddly. I'm your host, Mark Teske, for this evening, along with my co-host, Mr. Jacob Kloppenstein. Jake, how are you this evening? I'm doing well, my friend. How are you this evening? I am well, thank you very much. Hey, we said a few episodes ago that we wanted your help in naming our Gaming Moguls mascot. And we looked at it, and we've gotten a whole bunch of entries that are absolutely awesome, and the contest is now closed at the end of January. Do we have a winner yet, Jake? No, of course not. All these entries are far too wonderful to spend the quick amount of time it'd be to choose a winner. So we are going to sit down with all these results and really like kind of live with them in a while, and we want to choose the best one for us. So by the next podcast episode, we will have a winner announced on the next episode. Indeed. Yeah, we've got probably oh, eight or 10 of them that all could be great results. And I don't know which one we're going to pick, Jake. I really have no idea. Neither do I. So anywho, the listener should keep an eye out for the next episode where we will announce the winner. And of course, what was our grand prize for the person who successfully names our mascot? An oink version of the wonderful Reiner Kinesia classic modern art. I was just verifying that was still available. It still is. So good, good, good. We're going to have a chip directly to you. So once we have a winner picked, we'll get your uh, shipping information, have a chip directly to you and make it easy on everybody. Speaking of games traveling from long, long away, I got some great news today, Jake. What's that? Our favorite game, one of our that was kind of in our top five, top three, top two. I just heard that is coming to the U.S. this coming year. The game Metro X by Hisashi Hayashi, published only in Japan, is going to be coming to the U.S., published by Game Crafters. Oh, that's awesome. Good news. Yeah, the front of the box looks pretty cool. I think I still prefer the Japanese Okazu brand version, but the fact that more people can get this game is absolutely wonderful because it is an absolute gem of a flip and right. It's probably the only one I still really love. Yeah, and I think one thing they're going to do that's really great on this one, they redid all the graphics pretty plainly, but they also, instead of including like a uh, uh, score pad sort of thing inside there, they're actually going to be including dry erase boards for marking up the subway routes on there. Oh, that's great. I ended up doing that and laminating my own boards, so it's nice to hear that the Jake selection of what you're supposed to do with that game is applicable for the real publishers. I did that as well. So we have an action-packed podcast for the listeners today. We should talk about the games we played this week because, oh man, it's a lot. We actually had to cut out some because we played so many games in the last couple of weeks. I'm going to start out with my favorite misadventure of the past week of gaming. Yes, I'm hearing you talk to me about this offline made me very happy I was not present for this gameplay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so sit down, chick kiddies, uh, gather around by the fire, and uh, Uncle Mark is going to tell you a little tale of what not to do on a gaming night. It all started innocently enough with getting together with my friends Eric and JJ for a good evening of gaming. They said, hey, you brought some great games with you. What do you got? So I opened up my case and before long, we ended up settling on World Without End by Mayfair Games uh, by Michael Rennick and Steven Stadler. A very painful resource tight. It's kind of like, you know, if you really love the feeding aspect of Agricola, this game's for you because that's really what the whole game is, is trying to feed your people at the end and eke out a couple extra points. I've played this, I don't know, three, four times in the past couple of months. I don't know how I screwed the rule up this badly, but what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to play this event card every round. Then you're everybody's supposed to play one card and discard a card. Then you play another event card. Then you do that and repeatedly. I screwed it up and said that you actually have to play your whole hand out before you reveal another event card. I, I literally made this game six X as long as it should have been. 
<laughs> yeah, that seems not good to play the game twice as long. What's really weird about this whole rules debacle is you've played this game twice and you've played it very robustly twice. I just don't know how you, you cross the wires there. Yeah, I don't know. It's I, I just had this mindset like Gloomhaven where you play out all your cards and then you refresh them and get them back. I don't know. So I, I realized that things, this game was going horribly wrong about two and a half hours in into what should have been a 90 minute game that we were only halfway through the game. And we were drowning in resources in a game that's supposed to be so tight that everybody's starving to death. I have actually heard this story both from you and from Eric, who was there. And oh, man, it just sounds awful. It's so funny that just like sometimes one small little rules mess up of a game that you definitely know can completely ruin the whole gameplay experience. I knew something was horribly wrong and had just gone broken in the game and I could not put my finger on what it was. So I was literally just pouring over the rules endlessly and finally reading something out loud. I was like, oh, I'm an idiot. You're supposed to play a new event card after every card play, not after every handful of card plays. So anyway, fine. We decided to reset it and we decided to just run it back quick. And this is going to be much faster. And holy cow, this is going to be fun. So that started out well enough. Game started out great. Everybody was like, oh, my goodness, this game's so much harder. Holy cow, this hurts so much more. I can't believe how much tighter this is. Oh, oh, you know, much gnashing of teeth and so forth. And that went great till about the next to the last play when one of those events came out and torpedoed a card that was in everybody's hand that everybody was planning on playing. I honest to goodness thought JJ and Eric were going to flip the table right then and there. <laughs> they are both people that really like optimization games. You know, they like being able to make a master strategy for three or four different turns and execute on that perfectly and have a big master stroke where they get a whole bunch of points all in one big blast. And that is not the game they were playing. And I don't think they realize that's the game they were playing. <laughs> so what the world without end actually is, is the world without end is a game about making lemonade out of lemons. Every turn, that event card throws another lemon in your path. The one that wins a world without end is the person that navigates successfully around all of those minefields that are getting put in front of you. Well, they didn't realize that, and they were really optimally planning three or four turns in a row, only to have a landmine go off and blow up their entire game, costing them like literally a third of the points that they were planning on scoring. Ultimately, JJ ended up winning. Still was a fun night, but um, <laughs> pretty sure I'm never getting them to play it again. Yeah, that's such a bummer because this has actually been my pile of games that you own that I'd actually really like to try. So <laughs> I'm happy maybe you ironed out some of the random kinks that popped up before uh, before I got to play it because that sounds absolutely brutal and kind of one of those nights that leads you not super happy about the hobby, you know? And I know in the future, besides getting the rules correctly, is I really need to better explain that this is not a Euro conversion game. This is not a Euro optimization game. This is a make lemonade out of lemons game and, and and really make sure that that is understood before people go into it and try to optimize their best. Gotcha. All right. Well, that is world without end. I also played one game without you, but surprisingly, the rest of this list, we've all played together. So might as well get the one that you didn't play out of the way. I am a big fan of TMG games and I also like train games. And so TMG released a Modius game design group train game. And so I said, oh, I got to get that. And so I purchased Mini Rails last week and learned the rules and played it this past Wednesday. Mini Rails is designed by Mark Garretts, and it's about the simplest cube rail style game I think there could be. So in a cube rails game, usually there's a bunch of hexagons or shapes or something, and you are building little train routes amongst this area, this map, to try to get the most revenue for certain companies, try to get the most points, yada, yada, and so on. But Mini Rails is a hyper simple version of this. It's a kind of Catan style six-sided hexagon with a bunch of different tiles that you put in the middle. 
And then on the along the ring, there is six different companies, maybe five, six, five or six different companies. And each round, we're going to draw a bunch of these discs out and put them on this little drafting board thing. And depending on the order, which starts as a snake draft, you take your pawn, your player pawn, and you put it on the disc that you want to use. Then you can either have this become one of your shares, or you can extend the route of the color of the disc that you took. And depending on what the little hexagon looks like, the, the spot that you're t- building adjacent to, it'll either increase the value of all of everyone's shares for these, or it'll decrease the value of all the shares for these. You can only ever do every option once, so you can only ever take per each round, so you can only ever take a share, or you may extend track once per round, so you can't take share twice in a round. And then, after we've all taken all these things in a certain order, our pawns are then lined up for what we're going to do for the next round. So it's all these different push-pulls of really interesting mechanisms of trying to decide when's the right timing to take something and take everything out. The other thing that's really neat is there's always one extra disc, depending on the number of players. So we had three players when we were playing, so there was seven discs with each of us selecting two. And the one that's left over gets put at the bottom. If you don't have a disc at the bottom for each company, they will not score positively. But the same is also true in the inverse. So if you have a disc at the bottom at the, they call it taxation area, even though that makes no sense, and the score is negative for each one of your shares that you have there, then you won't actually lose points there because they paid taxes. They can't actually cause you to do negative points. So it was a really neat little game. I think it's going to be one you're going to play pretty soon because it's super fast. We played this game twice in the amount of time and teach in the amount of time that it took for you guys to set up Viticulture and play it. I mean, I think it's about as simple as they come. So yeah, that's Mini Rails by Mark Garretts, published by TMG Game slash Modius Game Design Group. And I think it's got to be a 1A on the mogul scale. It's about as simple as they come. So Jake, you know what other games that uh, Mark Garretts has done in the train genre? Rolling Steam. It's the Age of Steam dice game one from Steamrollers. There it is. Steamrollers. Bingo. Yeah, which is also a big favorite of mine. I, I don't get to play as often as I would like, but I certainly like steamrollers. So right off the bat, Mark Garretts has a little bit of a uh, free pass pedigree. for me, maybe. Pedigree. That's a better way of putting He's got it. got some pedigree for you. Yeah, I think it's going to be one you're going to really like. I mean, it's, it's nothing more than it is. I mean, it's a really fast one of these games. And if we're ever in a situation where we could either play Irish Cage or this... We will never play this. We'll always play Irish Gage, right? Or Chicago Express or whatever. Sure. But the fact that it's super light, filler length, slightly uh, more random, more, not, I'm not going to say replayable, but as more random setup or something, I think it'd be a neat little game. So um, that is Mini Rails. Hopefully we play it more. Hey, also on the route building, or shall we say bus route building category. Hey, look at that. I finally made good on a promise that I made a whole bunch of episodes ago that I would let you teach me bus and I would give it a whirl. And we finally were able to make that happen last week. So it's funny. I'm sure the listeners know Mark and I talk to each other a lot and we do talk about games. We try to plan the podcast episode a little bit. Well, I don't think we always do the best job of that, but uh, I don't know what you think of bus. And I'm really excited to hear what you think of it (laughs) because we didn't talk about this and I don't know why it just kind of somehow got swept off. I don't know if you were saving it for the podcast, but I'm I'm excited to hear what you think. This is the first take here. We do often have a very long kind of decompression after a game night, especially when important games have been played, games that we care actually deeply about. And I'm not actually sure either why it was that we never actually recapped and decompressed on playing Bus for the first time. Bus, published by Splatter Spellin, designed by, who else? Yaris Versenga and your own Druman. With the most recent version published by Capstone Games. Sure, yep. Boy, I can tell you straight up that it's a beautiful publishing of it. I was really impressed with how it looks I haven't seen the old version of it, but I know what other old Splatter Spelling games look like, and this has got to be better, Jake, wouldn't you say? 
It has less character, but it definitely looks more appealing to the eyes. I think you can say the old ones definitely have a lot of character. It might be a little bit of damning with faint praise right there, but we'll take it. So a little bit of background. I am not the biggest fan of pure abstract games, like things that are really, really, really abstract and really just sort of this, uh, here's a couple of rules and now think out this seven turn in advance difficult puzzle. That hurts my brain. I don't really like to spend that much time thinking turns in advance. I'll like start thinking a turn in advance. Then I'll make it about another quarter turn. And then I'll wonder what that smell is. And then I'll hear a song in the background and I'll try to remember what the third verse of uh, Freebird is. Joys of being somewhat attention deficit, right? So <laughs> I, I have trouble thinking multiple turns in advance. That was what this game felt like when you first pulled it out and talked to me, is it felt like a, a puzzle where you guys knew what you were doing nine turns in advance, and I couldn't see it. I was just, so I was sitting there going, oh man, I, I'm being shark. You guys know what's going on. This is horrible. Stop this now. Stop this now. Fortunately, I kept my mouth shut and I stuck with it. And somewhere, I don't know, there's really only, what, about eight turns in this game, Jake? Nine turns, something like that? I think mathematically it can't be beyond 10 turns if everybody okay. plays only two discs per time. So, yeah, I mean, it maxes out at 10. I think we usually play around like six or seven, maybe eight, depending on how many times people will go extra. So sometime three or four turns in, it, it finally clicked on me and I saw, OK, I see how things move through here and I see how you have to plan this in advance. And OK, that's really important at that point. I did relatively well the rest of the game, actually. I mean, the first three or four turns, I was literally just sort of putting stuff places because I had no idea what was going on. But halfway through, I figured out what was going on and ultimately didn't do too bad. I didn't win, no, but did uh, fine. I did respectably. Well, I think it's one of those games where uh, it only scores at like like a winning score is like 12 or something like that, maybe even less than that. So, I mean, the difference between like 10 and 12 is very, very, very prevalent. But it doesn't feel that bad, right? It's only two points, you know, just two dudes. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. No, I got killed, even though I was only two points behind. But it didn't feel like I got killed. Jake, there are some games that are like skiing and there are other games that are like snowboarding. And the reason I say that is, you know, skiing is kind of a linear progression of ability, whereas snowboarding is something that I just kind of get it one day. You can't do it. It seems impossible. Then all of a sudden you get it. Right. It takes like three days, right? Right. And this, I would say, is more of a snowboarding kind of a thing. Like, I don't think I by any stretch have understand the strategy behind it, but I suddenly got it. And yeah, since then, some of my favorite games have all shared one characteristic. I kind of started out maybe not really liking them or hating them. And then they suddenly become like a uh, brain version of an earwig, right, where you can't stop thinking about them. <laughs> right. Just, I mean, that's 18xx, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, 100%. That's the poster child for that. And um, I have been thinking about bus quite a bit since then. So um, ultimately, by that measure, yeah, I, I, I feel like I got it. I understand. And I'd really looking forward to another chart, another crack at it now that I know how to get down the hill on my snowboard. OK, well, I'd like to talk about at least one point you made there about kind of the abstract nature of bus. And I've heard that brought up multiple times from other people in the local play group that this game's pretty dry, pretty knives out. The one thing that I think keeps it from being too turned planny, like wrote what you're going to do is bus has that wonderful worker placement thing where you place all your workers, then you resolve the actions in a certain order. And you can be pretty sure about what somebody's going to do. 
but you can never 100% know what Steven's going to do with his, with his worker there, right? Oh, you have yeah. no idea what he's going to do. And so it becomes a game because I agree I don't like real abstracty games. Like I'm going to use an example, Blue Lagoon, where it's like, okay, I just know what I'm doing. And if Kirk comes one this way, then I go that way and I take the thing from him. So he's never going to do that. And we're kind of in a checkmate scenario for that one resource or something. So I can work on other stuff or something like that. And that does not feel like it's present in a negative way in bus like it would be in other games like that. So I just thought I'd at least at least counter that point there. Oh, yeah, absolutely fair. I think that this is a highly interactive game. No, no, I definitely felt like we were competing for key resources and that, you know, mm-hmm. what you did and where you did and where you move things absolutely mattered. And it did take me a good chunk of the game to get over that level of intimidation that I was the uh, newbie in the room just getting gutted by you guys. But still, once I was actually able to take a little more agency and do maneuvers that, I don't know, once I landed a couple punches, I guess, then it was all fun. Yeah, no, and it kind of makes sense. It's it's one of those games that has, it's so simple, but like how all the gears mesh together make it not simple. Because oh, I mean, this sure. is literally like a, like it's a too large poster sheet of paper i mean and they could have written the rules a little bit more curtly but it's just like there's so little rules in it like like everything you do is just distilled down to this point where you might just like screw up your complete game just because of that one play and so it's a little bit intimidating because there's not a bunch of fluff actions everything you do really 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 matters and every decision is incredibly important so it can be really intimidating the one thing is you weren't being that gutted. Steven and I were watching and making sure you didn't do anything stupid and we were coaching you through. So you were still in the game those couple <laughs> sure. of terms, even though you didn't feel like you were being, uh, uh, you felt like you were being dunked on. There was a moment of uh, distinct schadenfreude about, you know, halfway through there where I made a move and heard Steven kind of go. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I'm like, right. ah, I landed that punch. <laughs> there you go. Right. Yeah, you can just tell <laughs> like, if Steven okay. gets mad or not. He kind of furrowed his brow and (laughs) anyway, no, I, I, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed playing it in hindsight. I'm glad I didn't uh, pull the ripcord about halfway through and demand to play a different game because I knew I'd figured out if I wrote, wrote it out. Oh, I will say one thing. I need to never, ever, ever learn a splatter again during dinner. I think that was a big factor. I cannot learn them during dinner. Splatters just don't make sense to your brain. I don't know why. They make so much sense to me. I don't know if I'm like think the same way that the designers do, but like usually these games are so simple and I I teach them to you and it just seems like I don't know what it is about your game brain, but it seems like it's not wrapped around the splatter design ethos as much as the other ones are. So I don't know because you get games real quick. Like usually it's like I you're you're rushing me to get through the teach because you already know how to play, right? You can deduce the rest of the information. Yeah, I think it is because in a lot of cases, there aren't steps. Yeah. And I think maybe I understand steps better. Do this, then do that, then do that. Here's the next step, then do that. And there's not really steps, you know, in a, in a, right. a typical splatter game. And I think maybe that's something that I don't quite understand then how how everything moves. But I, I absolutely think I was more concerned about eating dinner than I was about trying to figure out the game when the rules explanation was going on. So. I, I was highly distracted, and I think because I was super hungry, and I think in the future we just need to just say, whoa, 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 dinner time. Let's hit this one second. Got it. All right. Well, that is Bus by Joris Rasinga and Joran Druman of the Splatter Spell and Crew, but this edition was published beautifully so by Capstone Games. On the mogul scale, I think we're giving that one a f- strong 2C. Seems fair. Yep. I, 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 so I would lobby, based on our newer kind of we're sort of stretching the scale a little bit argument. Might go 2D on this one, Jakey boy. Wow. Yeah, there's some stuff there. 
it's kind of one of those games where every single thing you do impacts every other player and you need to consider that in every single decision you make. So maybe, yeah, with the amount, the amount of things there, we can see. Let's call it C plus as of now. Mm-hmm. Call it the difference. So moving forward on other games that you've been wanting to play for a long time that I taught you. And we also got to play Container by Mercury Games, designed by Franz Benno Delange and Thomas Ewert. I've played this game a whole gob of time, but you've somehow owned it before me. I picked up a copy of this at Gen Con. I went by the Mercury Games booth and they somehow had a couple copies of the big box 10th anniversary super deluxe, you know, the one with the giant ships and all that. Ugh, sucker for that kind of stuff. In the booth, I had to buy one. Of course, dumbest place ever to buy a seven kilogram game or whatever that dumb thing weighs. <laughs> then I had to, my, like, I'm still having shoulder issues from schlepping that thing around all day long. That game has been weighing on my soul. See what I did there? for an unbelievably long time to actually get it out and play it. And finally, last night, I just said, Jake, we're playing Container. We have five people. We're going to have about two hours. That's the perfect title to play there. So I'm glad it really worked out that way. It certainly did. So what you're doing in Container is you are different shipping companies who are producing little containers to then have other people buy them and put them in their harbor to which you can pick up with your container ship and bring it to the center board where everyone can auction on them. It's a quite simple and elegant design because all those actions are really simple. There's maybe a little bit of caveats I need to teach when I taught you how to play that game and gesture to a few things on the board, but that's kind of it. You pay whatever the cost of the container is, and it's in a bunch of different buckets depending on how much it costs, um, which you get to adjust. And it's it's really neat. It's a really tight economy, and I'm so happy you got to play because I'm such a big fan of this game. What did you think, Mark? I know the listeners know I'm a big fan of this because I think I've spoken on it a whole bunch in a couple of podcasts. Yeah, that game is fantastic. I really love the amount of interactivity with it, how just everything is interlinked on what you did, what you price things at, who comes and takes your stuff, who gets to the auctions first, how much money people have. Every little part of this game is tightly linked to every other player in the game. And that made it a very, very dynamic play. Again, it took me a turn or two to sort of figure out what was going on because how the how the money moves through the game is not immediately apparent. It sort of smells like an efficiency production game, like I'm going to build these things for this much and then I'm going to sell it for that much and that profit is going to be what I'm going to eke out. And that's not at all how the game actually works, as I found out about halfway through. No, yeah, because it was funny because you were like, I need more. <laughs> and you didn't say what color, but you, you looked very disgruntled and you were like, I need more containers. And people weren't selling them. And I was like, that's not, I mean, I, I tried to explain it to you more or more politely, but I'm happy you finally learned through your play that kind of what this game's about. It's not a Euro engine optimization puzzle at all. What's funny about it is you can make containers of a certain source. And by the way, at the end of the game, you win by having the most money and you have the money in your hand. Plus you have the value of the containers that are in your storage space on the island. And the only way you get stuff in your storage space on the island is by winning the auction for them. And everybody's got different values on which containers they have. And oh, by the way, whatever one you have the most of, you don't get to score. So you have to earn them somewhat evenly as well. So I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to move. The the problem was, is I was actually making the type of container that was actually the highest scoring container that I wanted to. And I knew that if I made them, I couldn't load them onto my own ship and transport them to the island and end up with them. So I was I couldn't figure out how to get people to come by right. and buy them and move them to the island. And it's all about pricing it cheap. Yeah. See, we it's it funny because yeah. you, you were showing it at the beginning. You're like, I don't want to tell everybody what's going on, but something 
is like deeply upsetting. And meanwhile, I'm sitting with the exact same situation. I have Gray as my most valuable container on the island. And I also was the person who started producing Gray from the get-go. I know it's different because I think Kirk, who's to my left in this gameplay, he built started a Gray making factory. Grays. Yeah, really Medium-ish game. I don't, I don't think, I, yeah, it might have been in the early third of the game, but it wasn't like the first turn, I don't think. I think it was the handful of turns after that. But yeah, it's, it's weird because you have a control over the economy, but like kind of not really. And you just really have to like see what you can do on the game state right now and put yourself in the position where you can win some auctions. Because the other ones, yeah, they're worth 10. But I mean, if you get all the colors, your second place one are worth 10 as well. And the other ones are worth four and six and two. You know, it's just all about seeing how you can make and get the most money out. Where I finally caught on and started sort of following along and the two of us started to run away with the game was we both figured out about the same time that people were really overpaying for auctions on ships. And so my game shifted trying to produce things and get my own containers to just loading up containers and putting them up for sale on whatever I could buy, knowing that, hey, if I paid 10 for two containers on somebody's factory, that I could move those off to an island and get like 60 for them. <laughs> and that, and, and that was going to outdo anything else I could do money generation wise. And that's the whole thing that kind of makes sense. And it becomes an action economy. And I really would like to actually sit down with like a spreadsheet once and or maybe even like just have a spreadsheet while I'm playing this game and kind of see how much money you made on everything like per turn and stuff. But the one thing that I kind of dislike about this game and I brought it up before as kind of a benefit that this game is a little bit more on rails than other auction games like let's say modern art or something. But I think I'm actually gonna have to walk a little bit back on that statement because last night when we played, let's say I'm delivering three different containers, right? To the auction area. So whatever people pay me for those, those containers, I also get in a stipend from the government for delivering them or whatever. And so let's say Dennis is going to, he's the highest bidder. And let's say he bids something like 24 or 25. Let's say all of them are the ones that are going to score him 10 points. He just made $5 off that trade by spending $25 and getting to $30 worth of worth. I made like $50. I'm going to have to figure out how much it costs for me to like actually buy those things and put it on. And then the opportunity cost of not doing other things. And it's hard because it kind of, this game became last night, which is my main reservation with Modern Art with our local play group, is like the expected value. We get so close to paying what the thing is worth expected value wise, where it really benefits the person who can really bring them the most. So that's ended up how I ended up getting winning the game because I saw that, oh God, people are paying a lot for this stuff. And I was pretty okay with the containers that I had on my island. So I was just literally every single turn, I would leave the area, park at somebody's spot, buy all their containers that they had on offer. Then the next turn, I would get it to auction. And I ended up winning by, I think, like 80%. We had to call the game a little early, but... Yeah, it's just, I, I don't know how to fix it with this game. Do you have any ideas on it? I think that the real fix to this is actually experience. I think that closed economy or player-controlled economy games are highly metagame dependent. And what happens is, is that it takes a bunch of plays to really understand how to price things and how to value things. So look at the table. There were five of us. You'd played several times. One of the other players, Nick, had played once. Kirk had played once. I had never played. Dennis had never played. So there's several people at the table that really were not good at valuing what things really were worth. I think that with repeated plays and with repeated experience that many of us would get that much better and be able to figure out what things actually were worth. And it would be a much more dynamic, much more competitive game. So I, I think in, and I would say that with actually most games where you've got sort of a uh, economy like that with where and there's auctions involved. I'd say that with modern art. I'd also say that with the estates. 
where you sort of need to play it a few times to really understand what things are worth. Right. The only issue that I just and it's just it's it's frustrating because these are like some of my favorite games. We're always playing with somebody new who's never played a game before, no matter what happens in our game group, you know. And so it's just like I think the listeners maybe should reach out here and see if they've done something better with these kind of situations. But I mean, I don't know if it feels right to say, hey, I think a good rule of thumb for bidding is like maybe four to six dollars per container or something along those lines. And maybe that's even too high. I don't know. But it's just like it's hard to explain them to like think about that because I, I get it. I've been there. We're just like, you know what? I know it's a bad strategy. I'm just trying to see how things move. There's no way I'm able to understand that. I did that with 62 this past weekend. I had no idea. I did an intrinsically stupid thing. And I parred something really, really high just to part. I just wanted to see what would happen, right? And so I, I don't know. I don't know how it would work, and maybe it's something for the better. But it's just I'm not going to say anybody threw the game to me. But the fact that the meta had become, oh, God, people are paying a lot for these containers to get it on their thing. By me being the person who delivered the most, I just won, right? Well, and I think our other challenge here is that there are a few people in our group that this isn't their type of game. So, you know, we can sit back and say, hey, let's play this a whole bunch. Let's get this to the table a lot and really replay this. But there's some people that that's just aren't going to be that excited about doing that. Right. Absolutely. So that's going to be an ongoing challenge with that. But I, I'm all in for playing this uh, much, much, much more often because I thought it was great. Containers a wonderful game. All right. So what else did we play? I got a chance to pull out a new game to me and get you to play it last week. Why? This theme of us playing a whole bunch of stuff together makes for much better podcasting, doesn't it, Jake? Absolutely. On the topic of weird auction games, I noticed last night as we were in the middle of playing Viticulture that you were playing Fafnir, the latest Oink game. Right. You've been kind of jakey in your rules handling of this stuff. How'd it go last night? Oh, my gosh. It's been it's been so embarrassing. I usually can read game rules pretty good. And I don't know why it's become such a thing that I keep on messing it up. But Fafnir has been this like bugbear that I just can't get my rules head wrapped around. I just can't figure it out. And I don't know why, because it's such a simple little game. And so it originally started when I bought this game at PAX Unplugged. We played it completely wrong, but it worked. And then we came back and played it here. And you said, And you were listening to our teach and you weren't actually going to play it. And you're like, that's not how you play. And so I flipped some of the rules from what I played in PAX, but that still wasn't right. And so then finally, I reread the rules, sat down, made sure I knew every little instance of this game and resolved it quickly so I could play it because I needed to figure out what this game was about. And I will say my efforts were worth it because Fafnir, as I thought, was pretty dang amazing. Still kind of first impressions, even though I've only already played this game six times. It's pretty awesome. So in Fafnir, you're little chicken farmers, and you have a chicken that lays a whole bunch of jeweled eggs. Plays gold ones and I think five or six other colored jeweled eggs. And so each turn, it's going to lay a certain number of eggs. You always draw two, and you keep on drawing until there's two different colors eggs on that little thing. And then everybody blind bids with some eggs that they already own. Whoever bids the most eggs gets to win the new eggs that the chicken just bid. And then the ones that they threw away get thrown into this trash pile, which the reason why you can see the trash pile is once the auction part of the game ends, which happens when the trash pile gets filled up to a certain level, everyone reveals and shows all the hidden gems that they have. And whatever is the most numerous, whatever is the plurality of gems of one color is the most valuable gem, and that is worth three points each. The second highest count of them is uh, two points each, and then all the three other colors are minus one point each with all the gold being one point. Man, this game's cool. It does some really awesome things in it, and I think it's an absolutely wonderful game. You're a big fan of, of this one, right, Mark? Oh, for sure. And the reason that this is so interesting is that you can really manipulate the prices of what those gems are worth depending on what you decide to bid. So, for example, 
let's say I've got some red gems behind my screen and I suspect that Jake has a whole bunch of red gems and he's trying to think that red gems are going to be the highest count thing and that they're going to score really well. Well, suddenly now to win a different color gem, I may just bid a whole pile of red gems in there, which then remove them out of the plus column and basically put them in the minus column. So now suddenly I've basically trashed the economy on red gems right out underneath Jake. And now Jake has a whole bunch of worthless red gems behind his screen that he can then potentially use to (laughs) as bidding fodder to win something else and pivot mid game. And that level of manipulation of the economy is a really cool feature of what essentially is a 10 minute game. This did that thing that I love in auction games where everyone reveals and you kind of all bid the same thing. And so it Mm -hmm. really depends on not just how much you bid. It depends on your turn order because the person to the right of the auctioneer is going to be the person that wins ties. And then the other thing is the composition of your bid is really what's really important. So this simple aspect of kind of a closed bid game becomes a really tight, very many things to consider game and trying to read the entire table. And we really liked it. So happy that I put some work into this game because it is so worth it. It is one of the better point games I've played in a while. There was nothing like sitting next at a table next to you trying to teach a different game while I'm hearing what a mishmash you're making out of the rules at the next table. So they're going, that's not how you play the game. So first thing it is I priced based on scarcity, which I yep. guess made more sense to me because that's usually how like the real world works. But it's super boring. It is. It works, but it's boring. And then I flipped it and I priced it based on what you had. But the one thing was wrong about it. We were yeah, I can't remember what was wrong, but it was still wrong. And then we actually got the, the whole rules right and it worked out really well. So. So where would you put this in terms of uh, tiers of oink games? We've often talked about what our favorites are and what our worst are. What what tier what tier of game is this one? This is a top tier oink for me. I think this is one of the better ones. What about you? Yeah, so far, so good. I've only had a chance to play it twice, and uh, it's one of my favorites at the moment. Yeah, I think this is one of the better ones. Another one I want to circle back to, and I this out of of left field, but I think Tricks and the Phantom is another top tier oink we have not played in a while that I think is a very good game. Oh, yeah, we pulled that out and played it once this fall over at your place on a Sunday afternoon. And I really liked it. I mean, it's such a weird, like, how do you mishmash a trick-taking game with a deduction game where you have to deduce, like, who done it in order to win the tricks? That's so weird, but it was cool. So that is Fafnir by Jun Sasaki and Oink Games. On the mogul scale, it's got to be a 2B. Sounds good. It's a little thinkier than a lot of the Oink Games are. Speaking of small box games... You retaught me another small box games that I know you're a big fan of. Yeah, I make no secret about the fact that I like pretty much everything that Carl Chuddick does. Carl Chuddick is the master of the weird multi-use card games. Carl is the man behind the magnum opus Glory to Rome. He's the guy behind Matainai and another one that a lot of people consider also his best game ever, Innovation. This is a game that I think I exposed you to maybe a year and a half ago and we played maybe once. And then I've kind of went off and taught a bunch of other people that have since become their favorite game. And for some reason, we never loop back to it. Forgot how much fun that delightful bit of chaotic uh, explosion is that is innovation. So the idea behind the game is that you're building up a tableau of cards that have powers on them. All the cards have symbols on them. When you play a card, you can do the power that's on the card. And depending on what symbols other people have, they can either participate in the positive effect or they can be affected by the negative effect. So you can compel people to do things they don't want to if they don't have enough of a certain type of symbol to defend against that. Then once you build up a certain number of victory points, you can claim achievements. And depending on the number of players in the game, you get a certain number of achievements, and that ends and wins you the game. 
okay, so I got an achievement, you got an achievement. The problem is, is that the first achievement only costs five points. The next one only costs 10 points, then 15, then 20. So literally a big chunk of the game is just moving the goal line away from the other players. I can claim that quick and then it just becomes harder for the next person to claim it. Jake, what'd you think of innovation? I think your description of it is wonderful. Um, it's weird. I felt really chaotic and I know it's just because I, I, it's my first play or second play. I'd played it once, but didn't really have any shared knowledge of or memory of the previous play that, that applied to this one, but it was super fun. I mean, it's fun to kind of like sit there and kind of see all the cool wacky stuff you can do. And I love that splay mechanism. It's so cool. And it just, it, it really helps you know what kind of symbols you have and kind of what you're good at and kind of what cards you're trying to get. The one thing that's kind of hard is you never know really what color of card you're going to strike. And it seems like we got to a point where I had no reds and I just like, I kept on trying to get reds, but none of them. I still had to arrow one red and it, it was weird because it was interacting with forts and no one else had any forts. So I was able to pretty much always use the ability on it, but it just wasn't as pos- as powerful as the other ones. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I thought it was really fun. I'm always down to play it. I'd like to try it at two players as well, because I think it's a little bit tighter and a little bit more controlled, or at least that's what I've heard. So all of Carl Chudik's games are awfully chaotic. I mean, it, they're all about building the most broken combo first. And really just running roughshod on people with those crazy combos. I would say that this game is inherently extremely swingy. That's sort of both the uh, the delight and the curse of the game. You have to go into it knowing that that's what's going to happen and be amused by the ride. Absolutely. Yeah, one thing I want to comment, you mentioned splaying before, and I should probably take a minute or two and explain what that is, because I think that that is the real genius behind this game. There is a certain number of symbols down the bottom edge, the right edge, and the left edge. Normally, what you do is when you get a new blue card, you put it on top of your stack of your blue cards, and that becomes your new blue card, or your new yellow card, or your new green card. There are certain cards that'll say, splay any color right, in which case, what you do is you take the top of that pile, and you shift it to the right, and you shift every other card to the right, so that you expose all of the symbols that are along the left edge of that card. There's also some that say, splay left, which does the opposite. And then the really powerful one is splay up because that reveals the triple symbols on the bottom. So now suddenly if I'm trying to do an action based on how many crowns I have, if I've splayed four cards up, I don't just have two crowns on that card. I might have 11, depending on what I had stacked underneath there. And that is such a neat mechanism. Right. No, it's it's completely amazing. It's it's so neat. And it kind of is autopilot-y because it seems like every color kind of has a whole bunch of uh, icons that might matter. But maybe it like really deep play, you really decide what order you play certain cards to make sure that you can play them in the right way. Right. This game has, I don't know, 150 unique cards in it. No two cards are the same. And every card has its own crazy ability. And the game is all about what can I combo with something else? And you you discover new combos literally in every single playthrough of this game. All right. Well, that is innovation. What would you give it on the mogul scale? <sighs> this is a challenging one because it is so chaotic. It's a two-level rules. That's no problem. I can teach you how to play this one in south of 10 minutes very reliably, and you'd have no problem playing it. Strategy-wise, is extremely chaotic, and you can play through it pretty simply by just playing out cards and doing whatever you get. But to strategize better and do the optimal thing certainly takes some more thought. I'm going to peg this at a 2C. Yeah, I think that's fair. I might need to play it more. I could see this getting downgraded to a 2B just depending on how purely chaotic it is. But a lot of people who I respect a lot consider this game very tight and controlled at lower player count. I just think I need to get more plays, get more reps in it, get good at it, get good. Yeah, I've played it at both two player and higher player counts. It is a different game. 
I don't know that I can conclusively say that, oh, no, it's awesome at two players and it stinks at higher player counts. It's different, though. It's absolutely more chaotic at higher player counts. But the other fun part about higher player counts is that those events that you can force people to do, more targets, baby. There it is. You can do it more often. Your cards will trigger more often, which is fun. Cool. Exactly. That is Innovation by Carl Chuddick, published by Asmati Games. All right. So that was the what we played this week sector. Now let's go into the kind of entree portion of our conversation. Indeed. So last episode, we are kind of briefly alluded to the fact that we're going to have a kind of a study of the different mogul scale. So the mogul scale is a two axis degree that's supposed to kind of represent the weight of a game with the number parameter, meaning the rules weight and the letter parameter A through B and one through five for the number um, A through E, pardon me, is kind of the we called it strategy depth, but that's probably not the best way to put it. It's kind of the Decision depth, why don't we go decision with? Decision depth, yeah, because it's, it's just like how, how much do you really got to think to like win this game, you know what I mean? Um, right. And usually along that line of like a 1A or a 2B or a 3C or a 4D and a 5E, that's kind of what you want out of these games, right? Of the same amount of rules that you get out of it is exactly what you get strategy-wise. That's totally normal. It's kind of par for the course for that kind of game. And so in our previous episode, we kind of talked about the low number low letter kind of category. So like 1A to 2B kind of range. So this time we are going to talk about of its kind of upstairs neighbor, the high rules complexity, low, I'm putting this in air quotes, but you can't see, strategy component. So kind of like 5A to 4B-ish. And I think we want to be careful and not say low strategy. We're saying low decision, low level of decision. Yeah, low decision, yes. Yeah, and and there's a there's a good reason as to why I'm being very careful to couch it in that fashion, Jake. I didn't know what a can of worms we were going to open up when we started kind of talking to some of our friends about doing this topic. Right, and I, I understand why. I mean, it's not that any any game on here can be good or bad, right? These, as we said a million times, these numbers are not necessarily reflective of a good game. They just may be a better steering, a guidepost for you to understand what this game's about, right? And so if you're a light gamer, you definitely won't want to be playing these 4Ds and stuff because you really kind of like the lighter stuff. If you're someone who really likes learning really simple rules, but really deep games, you know, maybe you're going to try to play in those games that really have a big number associated with a low number. I mean, a big letter associated with a low number. Yeah, like a 2D or something like that. Right, exactly like that. And so I, I just want to, I think it'd be remiss if we didn't say a caveat of, Nothing we're saying here is objective truth about the, the, the merits of the game. This is just yeah. kind of what we've decided exists here. And I think this will be the hardest segment because I think this is the segment that we, A, know the least about, and B, kind of is the most pejorative comment section of the thing. What happens, I think, is that because these are games that are sort of rules forward, let's call it that way, where the, the mechanisms or the subsystems or the checklists are sort of the thing that makes itself the most obvious in the game. You're spending most of your brain power negotiating the checklist of things to do. You're looking up the case on what happens if this, then that. And there's a lot of subcases that you need to worry about as you're playing that particular game. So not saying that these are games that do not have strategy or tactics or decisions. Not at all. Some of these games have lots of that. What we're saying is these are games that are heavier on the number of rules cases than they are on the decisions that you have to make. What I found out is that what people tend to do when they don't like or they don't understand a game is they immediately brand it as fiddly. 
Oh, I didn't like that. That game's too fiddly. That's, you know, I found it really fiddly. And I've done it. Shoot. There are games that I've looked back and I really didn't understand it. And then, boy, it felt fiddly. And maybe did it have a lot of rules? Sure. But I think I'm probably unfairly branded it that way because I didn't either understand or like that type of game. Yeah. I mean, that's the term that everyone uses, right? Fiddly. So why don't we start with a quick explanation of kind of some of the reasons that we think these games live in this sector and kind of some descriptors of these games. So some of the characteristics of this sector would be that certainly they are rules forward. Like the rules are the things that you realize up front that you're there's a lot of explanations that are given. There's a lot of if this, then that. There's probably a lot of tables or charts that go along with that. There's a lot of looking up things. And you probably have a high reference on something that might be a multi-page player reference. Right. Absolutely. And what are some of the reasons that people do this for these kind of games? Usually it's because a lot of these rules kind of bring the theme forward. I mean, I'm a big or was a big D&D player we'll get to in a second. It is pretty thematic to imagine how load works in certain RPG games, right? And how that can move forward. And it brings forward the fact that, yes, you are walking from this one town to this other area that's pretty far away and you can't over encumber yourself, right? For sure. And does that influence the decisions that you have to make? Sure. I can't march an army as far because they're more encumbered. Absolutely. It impacts the tactical or strategic decisions that you have to make. But there's a level of complexity there that might be on what people want to worry about. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I think RPGs are actually a wonderful example of this kind of category of games. Because all of the RPGs that I've played are usually kind of DM or GM dependent. And so you can add as much as these rules in as you really want. Like I just got an email from a dear friend asking to join into a recent RPG group that he's going to start. And his list of just the rules that he's adding on top of an already existent pretty detailed system was literally like an entire email. And that wasn't even describing (laughs) everything. It was just a description, right? And all of those rules hit to the point that he wants to make this world come to life, right? He wants to bring this world and this this idea that he has into the game. And he thinks that the best way you can do that is through adding roles. And that's, I think, what a lot of RPG people think. And I think that's that's totally power to them for that. Well, definitely. And okay, Jake, a rule sheet for the game of chess. How long is that typically? I don't know, like probably a page. I mean, yeah, I know, I know where you're getting with this. Okay. <laughs> How many Dungeons and Dragons books are there? I mean, to play, you need three, right? You need them. I guess I guess you don't need the monster's manual. You just need a player book, and then you probably need the DM guide, right? There's easily a couple hundred important pages, pages that you actually need easily. to worry about. For- easily, right. And I mean, right. there's no game that's even comparable to that maybe like Combat Commander or something, but something that we certainly don't play. Like there's that exists, and people like that. They like the amount of crunch that they can get out of that game, right? Yeah. Sure. And like I said, I'm a big fan of D&D. So, you know, those of you that like that, you know, (laughs) at ease, (laughs) we're not attacking this. But I used to be. So I I, I remember the way I once was, but I I still I still respect D&D. D&D at the end of the day, you're not really planning out a major bunch of steps in advance. You're very reactionary towards whatever the DM is putting in front of you. So you do have to make decisions on the spot. But it's at the end of the day, To bring that world to life involves a whole bunch of rules and adherence to those rules to make sense out of that so that you aren't just doing whatever it is that you want to. Right. Absolutely. As a corollary to that, I think that uh, and this is 
I didn't realize how controversial this was, but I'm going to claim it anyway. I do feel that simulations fit into this one because just like how there are rules required to bring the D&D world to life, there are rules to bring a simulation to life. Now, the best simulation games have appropriate rules that make it into a real game with real decisions. And those games would not be in this sector. But there are some games that, at the end of the day, are a little more concerned about implementing the world and providing a realistic experience of that world than they are about maybe making it a great game experience. Maybe. And I'm going to formally say that this is a Mark Teske of the Gaming Moguls position. This is not a position held by all members (laughs) of the Gaming Moguls, 100%. Because this is the world I don't really know. This is the part of the games that I think I have the biggest blinder to outside of co-ops, which I still have played in the past. I don't know war games. I don't know con sims. I don't know that world. So I don't For mean sure. to talk about it. But I think to, to to clarify, what we mean by simulations is like XCOM. That is a very simulation heavy game because it, we, I think the rules there help enforce the theme of that game, right? Yep. Well, and I think one of the reasons I came up with this theory is that there's a uh, popular designer that we've played several games of named Vita Lacerda. And Vito Lacerda's games are very, very heavy, complex Euro-style games. Vito loves rules. Man, that guy loves rules. He loves rule systems. He loves subsystems. He loves to do this, then that, then this, then that, then this, then that, then finally that. Would that be a fair assessment of Vito Lacerda? Completely agree. What I've heard a lot of times in reviews of well, pretty much all of Lacerda's games is that, quote, They're almost simulations because he's put so much pedantic thought into how these world is implemented that he's created. Therefore, I think that some of those games do somewhat spread into simulation land. So that's sort of the origins of my thoughts as to why I feel that certain simulations may fit into this category of gaming. Agreed. And I think you hit the nail right on the head because one non-controversial aspect of this area is I think a good rule of thumb is how many subsystems games have. And I think Lacerda, as you just said, is king of subsystems, right? I mean, the whole thing about Lisboa, right? They said it's just as easy as play, draw a card, play a card game, right? But that is not the truth whatsoever. There's a million and a half things that go on with each play and each simple turn that you actually are supposed to take. So that, I think, is another another way to bring it home. I jokingly sort of feel like Lacerda's are Rube Goldberg machines. That No, 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 <laughs> really. Really, you're just tipping over a domino. <laughs> and then, right, and it's like... You know, That domino puts 95 other things into motion. So another aspect of these games and some kind of, I guess, I guess another games that kind of hold these truths are kind of Ameritrash or mini games. Again, Ameritrash is kind of a world I don't really understand. So again, don't don't stab me in the comments, but I do know mini games. I was a mini gamer for a long time and I was way more into mini games than I've ever been into RPGs or honestly, I might have been a bigger into mini games than I was into board games. But Mini games have a myriad of different rules. I mean, I played 40K, and so there's a bajillion factions. Every faction has a whole bunch of different rules that you don't specifically know. They all have different flavor text and all this stuff. They have each individual measurements for each gun and all of these different specific rules that if you really want to get good at the game, you got to read all of them. And that is just completely outside of the reasonable expectations, I think, of most modern board games. And I think that Again, these are not games that aren't without decisions to be made. I mean, I from my oh, understanding yeah. of mini games is that they're highly tactical and that you have to make smart decisions in order to win, right? Agreed, 100%. But on top of those smart decisions you're making, you're rolling. I played Imperial Guards. I rolled a bajillion D6. But you had to, you had to roll like handfuls of D6. And then after that, you have to consult a chart to figure out what their armor class is and their hit save and all that stuff. 
and you roll like three times and have to consult a table each time. And they have streamlined it and got rid of that crunch there. But I played, I think I played in fifth or fourth edition. And uh, yeah, I played in high school, so it was a while ago. And yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot there that I definitely do not see in board games, at least with the complexity of rules. Yeah, I can certainly see that. I've got some experience in the past playing Battletech and, you know, definitely there was a lot of rules versus what we were actually doing in the game. I mean, in the game, we basically were just going into an arena and blasting each other. But the amount of rules required to make that world come to life was probably outsized versus what we were actually doing. Let's talk about some of the other popular games in this sector, Jake. And I'm going to start this one off by saying that as I talk to people about our thoughts on this one, there was one game that bubbled to the top almost universally that every time I talked about this, I said, well, it's a game with a lot of rules versus what you're doing. Everybody went, oh, kind of like Arkham Horror. Oh, I would have <laughs> thought they would have said Lacerda games. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Actually, spice, 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 spice. Yeah. OK, so I'm just being a spicy boy. I agree. I agree. Arkham Horror is a perfect example of that. I've never played it, but from what I've heard, it seems to be exactly that. I played it a long time ago, and the 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 comments that I heard were along the lines of, boy, it's not really a game. It's kind of an activity. It's a whole bunch of rules that center around you just sort of walk around and do stuff. Right. Again, it's been <laughs> that a very kind of long... glaring. Woo! Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I probably was just pejorative. I, I played it once. It was a very, geez, probably 10 years ago, a really long time, and seem to remember having a fine experience playing it but the number of people that that was their number one response in the games in this sector was almost universal yeah i'd be remiss to not include it arkham horror and and it also pretty hard checks that ameritrash box doesn't it so another one that we have played a lot that i think exists in the sector is zombicide zombicide has not super amount of rules but with the fact that it's a co-op and uh you don't have i don't know super amount of agency and that's super biased because i don't like co-op games so maybe that's a that's a little shining through here. But a lot of the rules and the things you're drawing and all that stuff is just a build to the theme that you're running around with a chainsaw cutting down zombies. Right. Which is really the goal of this game. That is a vehicle for fun for people. For sure. Yep. I'll be the one to talk about Lisboa and Lacerda games because I actually like them. I personally can manage things and I sort of like simulations and I think it makes the game interesting. Do I think they're the most strategic and decision deep games? No, they're not. Uh, the rules definitely carry for on the forward on them, but I, I would say most Lacerda games, especially Lisboa, would fit into this sector where the rules are the stronger flavor than the decisions that are being made. I would 100% agree with Lisboa and a lot of his games as well, the ones that I've at least played. Yep, my next choice is Feudum. I would say Feudum is a game that, oh man, there's actually a lot of decisions to be made in Feudum. It's actually a pretty crunchy game. It's pretty hard to understand what's going on, but Wow, there's a lot of rules in this game. Oh, man, there's a bunch of stuff that just is extra. And oh, by the way, you need to worry about how you move your guy here. And if it moves on water, then the rules are different. And there's a lot of subcases and rules explanations in there. Another category of games that I definitely think we've got to include here is dungeon crawlers. I haven't played a lot of these games, but when I did, they have a lot of rules, a lot of theme, a lot of crunch to it to try to really simulate the fact that you're going through a dungeon trying to kill all these things and be an adventurer. You originally put Gloomhaven on this list. I don't know if I agree with that, though. I do think that it definitely is a dungeon crawler, but to me it seems to be, I've only played it like once or twice because I don't want to copy. I'm not in any groups for it, but I, I don't think it fits in that category, but you certainly do. Well, yeah, I think that this is one of those things. If you're an average Gloomhaven player, it maybe isn't so bad. But if you're the one that's managing the game and has to be responsible for how the monsters move, 
There's actually a lot of rules behind that. It's a little fiddly. I love Gloomhaven. I'm in the middle of a campaign on it. And I think it's super thematic. I, you know, it's definitely one of the better games I've ever played. But there are a lot of little cases on how to manage what happens if the monster walks into a trap and there's no other way around it. How does a monster handle which person to attack if there's two people the same amount away? So managing the automaton and what the monsters do adds a pretty good chunk of fiddliness to that game. I don't agree, but that's fine. I, I guess, but that's true. <laughs> I, I I haven't learned the rules. I haven't actually read it, so I don't have the full exposure to the game that you do. Sure. Moving on, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't say most mini games, like 40K. That was the one I'm most interested in. But um, going beyond that, I'm, I'm sure there's some other ones. And if you look at all the rule books on those, they're big. There's a lot of rules in there. I mean, compared to that size of rule book to, I don't know, even a game that's considered pretty heavy, like Arkwright, that has 70 something pages of rules. And everyone thought that's the longest rule book ever. It's just a different world. And then beyond that as well, D&D and honestly, most RPGs, they're big books. There's a lot of text in there to figure everything out. And not all of it is flavor text. Now that we've taken a look at what some of the games that we feel fit into this sector, and you know what? Feel free to disagree with us on this one, but this is how they have presented themselves to us. I think a lot of what happens is, is that those of you that are fans of this sector, it all comes down to how much do you love that theme? Do you like the activity so much that you're willing to learn all the rules for the world and live in that world? And in other words, I'm really saying, is the juice worth the squeeze to you? If it's not, you're probably going to look at that activity and say, wow, that's fiddly. There was too many rules. I didn't enjoy that. That took forever. But if it's a system that is bringing a world to life that you absolutely love, then you're going to probably like that sector quite a bit. Like, I like dungeon crawls. I like D&D. I like, well, shoot, Firefly. <laughs> Firefly is a great example. A lot of rules. Versus, but it's a pretty simple pick-up-and-deliver game. But love the rules, So, and I love the world, so therefore I'm willing to put up with that and willing to love the game. This is going to matter differently for every single person as to whether that's important to them or not. Right. What separates us here is, I am not a super theme guy. I, I don't really care about a lot of the themes in a lot of these games. I'm sure you could do a jump cut of all the times I said I love the theme. But I mean, I, I've even been told by people that I didn't even know had perceived this about me that I don't like theme in games or I don't care about themes or I don't put as much excise importance on it as other people that I'm friends with. And even back in the day when I was playing games. So some of the other things that I think draws me to this world is the really clever mechanisms with these worlds that you really can't get in other games. So I've really liked some of the RPG systems I've played. Success is one that I thought was a really cool take on like an exploding D6 that I haven't seen in other ones as well. And difficulty levels and all that stuff that doesn't really exist in the board game worlds. Other than theme, Mark, what do you love? I think there is a lot of innovation that goes into people trying to replicate a real life system with a game rule in a way that makes it fun to play. And we have seen some very clever mechanisms. For example, like you look at the two-card system in Gloomhaven and how that replicates what the abilities that, that each creature can do. That is pure genius. That is so well done. Right. Completely agree. And, and even going beyond that, think of like all the amazing things that Liz has done. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the game as a whole, but all the rubble mechanism, how everything crosses. I mean, there's some really cool ideas on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that all of those things to me are very interesting. Having said that, we don't love everything about this sector. In fact, actually, as I'm reflecting upon this, I'm realizing I maybe like it more than I thought I did. <laughs> I don't know. I think, yeah, I definitely think you have more of a game brain to systems than I do. Sure. And yep. I think you can totally pick this stuff up a little bit more. But 
I think some of the things that are, are, are objectively people claim about this sector a lot that certain things that we don't like is we don't like the fiddliness, which to other people may not be fiddly. We don't like the difficulty of learning the rules, which I'm sure someone who's played D&D for the first time will know. We usually don't like the randomness plus the rules, like as I said, in 40K, where you're picking up literally handfuls of dice to roll them. It's just, it's, it's too much. Yep, I would agree with that. So some of the things we don't like about them, definitely that fiddliness, lack of tough decisions all the time. I mean, some of these games, the reason that they're there is because maybe there's sort of pretty obvious decisions. There's a zombie walking down the street. Okay, I'll shoot it. So with that in mind, we both have some favorites in this segment that regardless of all this, we actually do really like some games in here. So Jake, I think I'll mention a couple of my favorites first and I'll let you wrap her up and bring it home after that. How's that sound? Go for it. Cool. Number three, RPGs, specifically Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, fifth edition. Love playing it. And to me, the rules sort of bring everything to life and bring home the uh, the fun in that world and the fun in that game. Second up, I know you don't believe it should be here, but I'm going with Gloomhaven. I think it's a real masterpiece. And even though it's a bunch of rules, it still is something that is mechanically necessary to have this dungeon crawl world that doesn't require a dungeon master to keep the game on the rails. And then lastly, I'm going to nominate my favorite game in this segment as the world's biggest Cabbage Patch doll. I call it that because it's so ugly to me, it's pretty. And that's Feudum. Such a weird game, so hard to teach. And I love it because of that. Jake, what's your best games in this sector? I should start with the one that I think historically has been the biggest ones for me. But this actually was one of the hardest lists I've really tried to put together. I'll start with D&D. I love D&D. I've been playing RPGs my pretty much entire life. They're the reason I'm into games, so I should certainly be thankful for them, even though I'm definitely moving away from it. I loved when I played 40K. It was so cool. I don't know of any game in the board game world that's really made me feel the same way. If my little guys are out there and they're just shooting other people's guys and my guys matter and the fact that they're actually little minis on the board that is, looks like the terrain, it's, oh, it's just so cool. I love it. I'm going to kind of go a little weird, and this is a really preliminary because I haven't played this game enough to know if it has it or not. I think Pax Transhumanity might exist in this world. It's got a lot of rules on how to move things, and I'm probably wrong, so take that with a grain of salt. But it just seems like all of these cards have all of these events that are trying to like kind of project what may happen. And then my least favorite game in the sector is Firefly, even though I love Firefly because I've had such bad experiences with it. When I played that game, it was just me continuously falling down the stairs the entire game. <laughs> yeah, kind of wrapping back to what you said about Pax Transhumanity. I think this is a game that we're going to have to play a bunch more to even decide. Agreed. I haven't been able to figure out this might be something that has a whole bunch of really strategic decisions or it might not. We spent so much time just trying to figure out how to get through the game that I don't know that we even be were able to taste that flavor yet. For sure. And I think it's because I learned the rules and read them while I was trying to teach it or trying to teach it to another player and then taught it to you. So maybe you haven't seen it, but it might be the same kind of thing as Gloomhaven where there's a lot of edge cases, a lot of little gotchas there. So anywho, that is my favorite games in this sector. Excellent. Well, hey, that was a fun little breakdown on another corner of the gaming world via the mogul scale. You know, we'd love to hear you chat with us about that via a bunch of different ways. You can certainly find us on our guild on BoardGameGeek. You can reach us on Twitter and all kinds of other places. And one thing I don't think we say often enough, Jake, is we could absolutely use your support in telling a friend to check us out because word of mouth is really how we get the word out there and how we grow our listenership. And so love it if everybody out there could tell a friend and just. Yeah, there's nothing that you can do that's better for our podcast than tell a friend if they're into games, you know. 
post about us. For sure. So, Jake, lots of fun. Well, that was a bucket of fun, Mark. I think this might be the one episode that might make people the most mad at us. I apologize. Know our biases. Know what we're interested in. That's, that was fun to tear through these kind of this segment, though, that I think will be kind of the most complicated segment that we talked about. Next one is going to be just as complicated. This was going to be the high strategy, low rules. And uh, this is not my wheelhouse either. So we'll see. This should be a fun discussion as well. 100%. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.